I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a London Review of Books podcast. When Tracy Thorne was 17, she bought an electric guitar through a small ad in Melody Maker. Only when she got it home did she realise something was missing. She needed an amp. She played the guitar anyway and got into the habit of making very little noise. A couple of years later, with Ben Watt, she formed the band Everything But The Girl. In the last 30 years, they've been signed, dropped, re-signed, mixed and remixed, while selling around 9 million records. Thorne grew up in the suburbs 20 miles north of London. She describes herself as a shy but confident child. I felt central, liked for who I was, special. There was no need to raise her voice. When punk was at its height, she was, like most of us, listening to Nilsson and Brotherhood of Man. Halfway through 1977, aged almost 15, she changed from being someone who had barely noticed pop music into someone who cared about very little else. From this point on, her diary filled up with music while retaining its hormonal underlay. J.J. Burnell is so hunky, love his jeans. In September, she bought drainpipes, dead, punky, triple exclamation mark. In October, she had her first spiky haircut and realised it was impossible to carry on being civil to your parents while claiming to like the stranglers. Sex Pistols' album Never Mind the Bollocks was released around the time Thorne was having that haircut. I remember glimpsing it in a shop window from the school bus. The word bollocks had been covered with brown paper, but the real thrill lay in the acid yellow and neon pink of the sleeve. This was a time when it seemed as if the entire country was wrapped in brown paper. The reverberations of punk travelled slowly, like everything else in England at the time. Even after it reached us, we hesitated. I remember feeling an intense connection with whatever this was, but it took some time to convince myself that it might want to connect with me. Just as we got round to ripping our jackets and piercing our noses, Sid Vicious died of an overdose and the Sex Pistols split up. Thorne's diary declares, This is the end of punk, really, which she now thinks was probably just something I copied out of the NME. Realising she was only 13 when a lot of the singles she treasures were released, 
She wonders whether she bought them later. By 1979, punk bands had settled down to touring old cinemas and dance halls. We'd fetch up at the local Odeon or Palais in leather and plastic pink hair and chains. We'd hand our tickets to ageing usherettes and take our red plush seats. Afterwards, we'd shuffle outside to wait for someone's dad to pick us up. Sometimes we'd find the place surrounded by police in riot gear. Even they were bored, and so when something came along that looked like trouble, it was made to be so. Those of us of Thorne's generation didn't document our musical lives beyond some ticket stubs and the odd snap. Lacking the frame-by-frame archive of social media or the camera phone makes it easy to confuse a collective memory with your own. You can start out with a confident, I was there, and find yourself quickly reduced to, was I? Thorne has her diaries, but squares up to herself all the same. I'd always kidded myself that it was punk that got me started. I still think it was. By pretending not to be musical, punk made music possible. Mainstream pop was too opaque to emulate, disco too exotic, and prog rock assumed a level of professionalism that was the stuff of grown-ups. We wanted bands that sounded nothing like pop and looked nothing like pop stars, produced by labels we'd never heard of. We could be all that ourselves. If you were 14 in 1976, you were young enough, as Thorne points out, to be impressed by punk and old enough to respond to its DIY ethos. No one talked about PR or managers. They set up fanzines and made cassettes. There was a lot of talk of democracy and little conception of this as a career. Resources were shared as if it was assumed that a band would make its own records and put on its own gigs. Thorne's local fanzine offered advice. If you're planning a gig in St Albans, write to the Director of Leisure and Legal Services. What was emerging into the space punk cleared was its opposite. Ambitious, elusive, varied and serious to the point of being ponderous. A political stance was assumed. Bands like Orange Juice wrote crafted pop and others such as A Certain Ratio gave us something we could dance to. There were connoisseurs of synthesizers, drum machines and digital delay, like the Human League, or Martin Hannett, the Phil Spector of British post-punk, who produced Joy Division and Section 25. A new quietness was pioneered by the young marble giants, spare melodies, withheld vocals and the barest murmur of guitar. that for all its insistence on the obliterating new, punk had a past. Girls grew their hair and wore their grandmother's dresses while boys donned suits. We listened to jazz. Thorne wanted to join a band to develop a more certain version of herself 
to have something to belong to and maybe to find a boyfriend. So she bought her guitar, practised and waited. Sure enough, she was asked to join a band called Stern Bops and was soon dating the lead singer. They got an avuncular write-up in the St Albans Review. They do a nice line in pop originals that combine echoes of the 60s beat group sound with a modern up-tempo zest. Thorne still has a Stern Bops rehearsal tape with Do Not Play Ever written on one side and Some Good Stuff on the other. She seems always to have known whether or not something was working. When she was first asked to sing, she agreed to have a go if they let her try it from inside a wardrobe. She had to explore it first on her own. She seems to have been more interested in the music she was making alone in her room. I just want to be on my own and get on with playing without anyone noticing. Perhaps this first band was a way of establishing her musical self while concealing it at the same time. Her next step was to form her own band, the Marine Girls, in the summer of 1980 with some friends from school. Within weeks they'd made a tape on a borrowed four-track recorder and funded 50 copies through Saturday jobs in the village toy shop and a space-themed burger bar. They placed an ad in the NME. The blank confidence of youth and their roll-your-sleeves-up attitude were rewarded when letters arrived from a distribution company, a German radio DJ and a Dutch fanzine. They had yet to play outside Tracy's room. sound like what they were, a bunch of girls playing songs in a bedroom while trying not to disturb the parents downstairs. Thorne is amazed that these fragile sketches have become so respected, but recognises their substance. Their friable nature is a form of resistance. They sound suspicious of the very idea of performance and are determined not to charm. They're trying to find a way to be a band without being boys. Thorne makes it clear that being in a band didn't make you one of the boys, or one of the girls either. Local boys in other bands would flirt with us a bit, then run away. And for girlfriends, they often chose girls who weren't in bands and would never be in bands, but just wanted boys in bands to be their boyfriends. If you were the only girl hanging out in the record shop, you soon learned that music was something boys wanted to show you not have you show them. James Hunter has written in The Village Voice that Thorne's voice remains moored and intact, full of radical mid-range rationality. Her way of writing about her feelings is similar, almost diagrammatic. When she was in The Marine Girls, A Broken Heart inspired me to write a few good songs and maybe even brought about a shift in my songwriting that marked the true beginning of everything I've done since. There was a boy, and it was difficult, and it hurt for a long time. A bandmate asks her how the songs On My Mind and Don't Come Back can be about the same person. 
Thorn tells us, and she doesn't. The Marine Girls signed to the independent label Cherry Red. I was also in a band signed to Cherry Red, and remember the strangeness of arriving in a white, stuccoed part of London where people had offices. I don't think I'd been in an office before. The label was run by two men I thought of as a splenetic genie and a groovy dad. It was like being sent to see the headmaster, only for him not to know why you were there. The groovy dad now reminisces online about how it was all about making money from the publishing. The genie was last seen fronting a campaign to save the architecture of Milton Keynes. Thorne signed a contract so draconian that when she and Watt extricated themselves, everything but the girl's first album sat on a shelf for a year before being released. We couldn't carry music about with us, but had to listen to it in our rooms, and the music we made was to bedsit scale. It worked if taken only as far as a slightly bigger room. My band's first gig was at the Beatbot Club in Camden, and was, in the incidental manner of the times, reviewed in sounds. No one expected us to put on any sort of show. The building looked as if it had been condemned, and we had to use the lavatories in the pub next door. In this context... The spare and wobbly thing we were doing worked. People weren't expecting it to be good, only interesting. Such music easily got lost when it came to making a record. In our case, it was like entering an acoustic hall of mirrors as the producer tried to bounce and double what we did into palatial pop. We weren't good enough to survive this or determined enough to resist it, and that was that. Cherry Red never got the however many songs per year their contract demanded. Not that they wanted them. Being in a band, even one with a record deal, wasn't a job and didn't stop Thorne from going off to Hull University in 1981 where she met Ben Watt. Like her, he was signed to Cherry Red. They clutched at the little we had in common in our music, realising immediately how much we had in common in our attitudes and there followed a period in which they wrote songs and made records, and it really did seem as simple as that. Thorne was leading three musical lives, with the Marine Girls, with Ben Watt, and as a solo artist, and studying too. In 1983, the Marine Girls split up. Everything but the girl had already found their beginning. Thanks for listening. For more, go to lrb.co.uk.